Please open up to the uh, 16th Psalm. We have truly moved on from our study of Luke. I know, I know. Um, We have truly moved on from our study of Luke, and we are now going to commence a number of weeks in the Psalms. Um, In years past, we we spent a lot of time in the Psalms. If you've been here over the last five or six years, you'll remember that we went through the so-called pastoral epistles. We did about five or six psalms, First Timothy, five or six psalms, Titus, five or six psalms, a series on a topic, five or six psalms, and Second Timothy, and we've covered about 36 of the psalms um, so far. My goal would be through a number of sojourns in the psalms to cover the entire Psalter in the next few years. Um, and so if you'll open to the 16th psalm, I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading it in its entirety and then We'll have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. <clears throat> a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we would understand and see absorb and make this same confession. We would have these declarations be true of us as well. Um, We would know you and your beauty and your glory and the pleasure and the joy and the security of being in relationship with you. So as we study this song that you have given us, um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Security... It's a topic that our world is greatly concerned with, whether it be in the home security industry and alarms, whether it be through self-protection and firearms, whether it be through stocks and securities of investment, um, having confidence in the future, not being, or flip it around negatively, not being anxious or afraid is big business. Um, when you factor in additionally the... Um, Psychotropic drugs, the anxiety medications that more and more of our country are on, begin to get a grasp of how big of an issue security, safety is, and the great measures we will go to to achieve it, to run after it. I'm not saying that any and all of those things are wrong, but just trying to highlight this is a real issue, and it's the real issue this psalm addresses. The dwelling secure. You see it repeated in the psalm multiple times. Um, Whether it be verse 9, I shall not be shaken. Or whether it be verse, um, that's verse 8, verse 9, my flesh dwells secure. 
And what we're looking at in Psalm 16 is, is the security, the confident security and assurance of faithfulness and of faith. Um, Psalm 16 follows after Psalm 15, and there are many similar themes. Whoever arranged the Psalter um, clearly organized these after themselves. You can see that. Just look at the end of Psalm 15, the declaration, he who does these things shall never be moved. Um, Very similar to verse 8, I shall not be shaken. Um, And by way of introduction to the Psalms, because it's been a while since we've done and looked at the Psalms, I would remind you that in the Psalms, we're seeing something very unique. Most of the time in Scripture, we are receiving directly a word from God through his prophets, through his authors, God speaking to us. And yet in the Psalms, what we get to see is it's as though we get to stand beside David as he prays to God. Now, these are still spirit-inspired prayers. This is still God's word. But uniquely, this is God's word given to man, spoken by man to him. And so in Psalm 16, we get to see David praying, singing to God. And we get to learn how we ought to likewise pray and speak to God. He's given us over 150 songs to sing to him for all the the various issues of life. Songs to sing when we're afraid. Psalms to sing when we're tired. Psalms to sing when we are joyful. Songs to sing when we are triumphant. Psalms to sing when we are defeated. He even gave a psalm for Jesus on the cross. We looked at that um, last Resurrection Sunday. As, as Jesus utters the words of Psalm 22 on the cross. And so the Psalms are, are wonderful in that sense because they, they give us a mark of how should the people of God deal with life. I mean, in many respects, the Apostle Paul most clearly synthesizes what we call the doctrine of Christianity as he, in Romans, unpacks the, the gospel, the issues of sanctification. But I think the other pull is the Psalms give us the emotional life. We get to see how flesh and blood people, weak, frail people, deal with fear and insecurity. Um, David here is is dealing with the fear of something that's a, a, a threat of death upon him. And yet we have a lot to learn from how he responds and ultimately has confidence. As I said at the beginning, our culture is very concerned with that, how do I achieve that sense of security and safety that I yawn long for and yearn for. And there are so many ways that we can try to achieve that through pills, through protection, through investments, through security systems, and ultimately, true security, protection, comes from God. So we're going to look at this in in four points, Um, a petition, a confession, a celebration, and a consequence. Let's begin with the the petition, verse 1. This is the only request in the psalm. Everything else in the psalm is either declaring what David does or has done or is rejoicing what the Lord has done. This is the only request. And it's straight to to the point. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Well, actually, I've skipped over the title. Let me first address that. Um, Psalm titles are part of the text. Now, my ESV has a title above the title. You can totally disregard that if your Bible has those. Those are man's words. 
But the psalm titles, in, in every copy of the Hebrew text that we have, they're present. And you'll see in this psalm, Psalm 16, the psalm title is critical for the New Testament application. It is critical when both Peter and Paul, separately in the book of Acts, cite this psalm. It is critical to their argument that it is David and no other who wrote it. So all the evidence that we have, textually, shows the authenticity and inspiration of the psalm titles. I'm going to talk some more about that in the ABF this morning. But I just would would remind you that as you're reading through the psalms, and you'll see these psalm titles, they are part of the Word of God. They are part of the text that has been handed down. Now, my ESV has, you will not abandon my soul. You can disregard that. That's what the editors of the ESV thought would be a helpful, pithy summary. But a mitcom of David is part of the text and is critical to this psalm. A mitcom, by the way, is uh, there's some debate over what its root origin is. Um, probably the best guess we have is a private prayer, a personal prayer, um, something along those lines. And so this is a mitcom of David. We won't turn to Acts right now. We'll wait a little bit later. But you will see clearly both Peter and Paul um, arguing emphatically and hinging upon the Davidic authorship of this psalm. So this is a psalm written by David, most likely a private or personal prayer, and yet, by showing up in the Psalter, given to Israel first, and now the Lord's church second, a song for corporate worship. So David's private prayer becomes a, a song to be sung by the people of God. And so even though we aren't experiencing the specific provocations that David is. There's some real threat to his life in his life that he's writing about, and that may not be the case for you. God intends for us to appropriate this. God intends for us to sing this and and to guide us in our approach to him as well. And so I've actually, in the notes, put it in the first person just as David. So as we sing this song, as we follow its path of prayer and praise to the Lord, we can make it our own as well. Because God has not left it as David's private prayer. He has given it to his people as part of their songbook. And so out the gate, we have the request. Preserve me, O God. We're right to the point. This is is the issue. David, along with our culture, is concerned about protection. And that word for preserve um, can mean, and here you're blanks, for present, either provision or protection. I think it's the latter more the case. But preservation can happen in, in two ways, both by supplying need and guarding against attack. And that's sort of, certainly the thought, if you look back to Psalm 12, the last time David makes this call. And by the way, David is constantly calling out for help. One of the things you learn as you read the Psalter is there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being aware of the threat against you. There's nothing wrong in being afraid. There's nothing wrong in feeling weak As long as you turn in that weakness and fear to the Lord. David does it again and again and again and again. But if you look at Psalm 12, verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prile as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So there's this threat of the wicked. God's keeping and he's guarding them. So it's both provision and protection. And David gives the ground for this. There's a four. He's reasoning with the Lord. Lord, you need to provide protection and provision for me because, or for, in you I take refuge. That's the logic. And much of what this psalm is going to continue will be David unpacking how exactly he does. What does it mean he takes refuge in God? But 
The most immediate logic is this, God, I've turned to no one but you. So you need to protect me. You need to uphold me. And, and the good news is God promises he will do just that. He, he offers himself up as a stronghold and a protection. He says, turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. And David's saying, that's what I've done. I've, I've turned to you. I have not, as we'll see, turned to other gods. I've not turned to other sources of protection. I've turned to you and you alone. So protect me. And he is bold and confident in that request. And as you'll see by the end of this psalm, he's confident in its being granted. Which also means we can simultaneously be full of faith, full of confidence in the Lord, and yet still say, help! Protect me. Provide for me. Help. I feel threatened. Those are not mutually exclusive experiences. You can simultaneously experience confidence in God, faith in God, joy in God. He's not going to let me go. He's not going to let me slip through his fingers. And yet, help me, God. You can say both. This psalm says both. So the petition for immediate need, he wants provision and protection because he's taking refuge in the Lord. Which then leads to him sort of, I think, unpacking what that thought means. What, what does it mean, David, that you've taken refuge in the Lord? Well, in verses 2 to 4, we see his confession of loyal faithfulness. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David here is confessing his loyalty to God. Um, this isn't a claim in word only but it's reflected the reality. And, and one of the things to be helpful as you read through this is David is going to confess a, a very high degree of loyalty. And as I read this, um, I can be intimidated. And as I try to appropriate this for myself, how do I pray this? How do I sing this? There are going to be standards of loyalty that David is reaching, confessing, speaking to that may not be true of where you're at in your life right now. Then I'd encourage you as we go through this to pray and to seek that this might become true of you. Because I think what we're going to see is that the experience of, of rock, solid assurance, and safety goes hand in hand with the experience of faithfulness. Because David has been faithful, because David has been devoted, because David has not gone after gods, he feels the security that I think if he had gone after other gods, if he had been unfaithful, he would lack. I think that's the logic of this psalm. And so where you see yourself, where I see myself, I can't quite say that, but then make that your prayer. This is what it's put out. It's idealized in a sense. And ultimately we'll see the idealized fulfillment of this psalm is found in none other than Jesus Christ. But we'll, we'll get to that. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So first, a confession of singular devotion. Singular devotion. Um, and I'd like to highlight here that in the first two verses, he's using three different names for God. In verse 1, God is the shortened L from Elohim. It just means generic God. It speaks to God's power, his creator. In verse 2, I say to the Lord, I mean, your Bible has Lord in all caps. That is um, how most of the translations communicate the divine name, the name God gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Um, what is sometimes spoken of as Yahweh. This is God's covenant name, and it's focusing his covenant name and covenant with his people. This is God, particularly as he relates to his redeemed people. No, no one else calls him by this name. He is not known by this name to anyone other than the people he has redeemed. 
And then finally, when you see Lord without all caps, Adonai, the focus here of master, ruler. So in the first two verses, he's, he's referring to God as all of these. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You could almost better translate, you are my master. I have no good apart from you. Now, that, that is a bold statement. It's one of those statements that I cringe back at. Can I, can I truly say this? And in moments of my life, moments of elevated affections, elevated devotion, perhaps, but this is one of those parts of this psalm where I want this to become more and more true of me. I mean, think of that. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What David is saying is, God is my highest and only good. And that sounds great in the song, but start actually thinking through the logic. If God is my highest and only good, if I have no good apart from God, then when I lose other things, but I don't lose God, I haven't lost anything good. So start plugging in some of the things you could lose when I lose my health. I haven't lost any of my good. I have no good apart from you. When I lose my wife, my children, my job, my home. David's making a radical statement of, of singular devotion to the Lord. He sees in God the source of every good thing. And as he possesses God, and as he's in relationship with God, he has no good outside of God. Well, that's part of the way you can have a stable security. Because you can't lose that. Now, it doesn't mean you're not concerned about external things. David is, after all, asking for help. But what he's confessing is that his devotion and love and focus on the Lord, both as his master and as his reward, is such that he sees that he has no good outside of God. That, that is a very challenging statement, as I think through the many other things in my life that I view as good and it's not to say that my wife isn't a good gift and my children aren't good gifts and, and my, all those things are good, but they're good as I see them from God. Um, they're not good in and of themselves. And, and God will see is good. So David makes this bold declaration of loyalty to God. What does it mean that he's taking his refuge in God? Well, one of it, it means he set his heart and his mind on God with, with no competition. I have no good apart from you. Um, and, and we would do well to, to pray that God would bring us to that place where we can confess the same thing as well. Because, again, I think we'll see, as our devotion and our affections and our heart center on the Lord, our concern and our fear and our um, terror at this transient life and the things that can come and go will diminish. I mean, doesn't that make sense? If, if I don't view all those other good things I've listed as my good, then I will not be shaken and I will not be um, undone when I lose them. And that's part of the logic, I think. He goes on, not just from a singular devotion to God, which, by the way, if you remember the, the words of Psalm 73, the Psalms make statements like this repeatedly. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put to an end everyone who is unfaithful to you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. 
that, that is the ideal we need to strive for. It is not enough to believe true things. Our heart needs to be captivated by these true things. We, we need to desire this God. We need to long for this God. We need to pursue this God um, in his word. And, and part of what it means to find refuge in God is exactly that. Not only does he have a singular devotion, but he has a loving association. Because his only good is seen in God, then my true delight is in your people. Right? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We're about to see a contrast. How David feels about and regards and associates with the saints, God's people, the holy ones, and how David feels and associates with those who worship other gods. And all his delight, he says, is in the people of God. Um, that's another hallmark of a centered and grounded heart. It always troubles me when I talk to people who don't want to come and gather with God's people. There's the people who ask, do I have to go to church? We shouldn't be asking that. We should be asking, how often can I go be with God's people? Um, if you have to drag yourself here, something is likely wrong in your heart. I'm not sure what. But what we know from Scripture is that where God's spirit rules, where God is worshipped, there is a desire to be with his people that trumps all other desire. Your closest friendships, your sweetest fellowship should be with other Christians. If your closest fellowship is with people who hate your God but love your sports team, something is wrong. If your sweetest fellowship is with people who have no love for your God, but love your profession, something is wrong. Um, th these are the people we should delight in and love. Because if all my good is in God, and if God is my only good, then those people whom he has loved, and he has called, and he has redeemed, who he has said, this is your family, Jeremy. These are your mothers, and your fathers, and your sons, and your daughters, and your brothers and sisters. Well, then surely... Those are the ones I'm interested in and excited with. Our Lord modeled this. You remember in, in Luke, they came to him in chapter 8. His mother and his brothers came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, see, you knew I'd get Luke in here, didn't you? Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is modeled by our Lord. One of the things we will see is this, this model of devotion is modeled perfectly by our Lord and ultimately fulfilled by him. But that doesn't mean it's any less of a model for us. You can't just read this and say, well, ultimately Jesus did this, so I guess I'm good to not love God's people. No, this should be the desire of our heart. And if you want confidence, certainty, a lack of fear in your life and trepidation, you, you want this as well. Loving association, my true delight is in your people. David says, and God would have us say as well. Um, and, and God's people are broken, weak, frail. They're made up of people like me and you. And yet, David says, God would have us say with him, that, that those are the ones in whom is my delight. Let's go to the contrast. We go from loving association to cautious separation. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their lames on my lips. So first there's a warning for the fate of these others. And then there's David's response to them. 
Um, the warning first, the sorrows of those who run after. And they fill in God here, but literally the Hebrews just run after another. And God probably is the notion, but I like the notion of just another because it makes it a little broader and wider and easier for us to see the danger for ourselves. Most of us are not in danger of overt idolatry. I, I doubt there's anyone in this room who's tempted seriously to bow down to a graven statue or image. How about just another? How about the New Testament saying that covetousness and greed is idolatry? And you put this in the context of, of security and fear. And are we tempted to find refuge in another other than the living God? Or put it another way, how do the nations and the people around us, where do they run after and serve? Where do they find their security? And this is the contrast. David's saying, I'm not like them. I've put my hope in you. You're my only good. I love your people. In contrast, those who run after another, their sorrow is multiplied. That's the language, by the way, of Genesis 3, when God says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. So there's this multiplication of sorrows. Because, of course, the, the saviors and gods of this world, they don't deliver. I mean, I've seen firsthand. Um, my, I, I tell the story, my father... Um, very hardworking attorney, very, very diligent. And he got in an accident, and all of the money he'd saved and all the wealth he'd acquired just crumbled. It, it did not provide salvation in the day of trouble. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have savings. We shouldn't put our hope in them. We shouldn't be trusting in them. Um, you may have a home security system. I, I do. I mean, I got kids. I want to know when the door's open, Right. But I don't put my. I hope I don't put my hope in those things. Um, the sorrows of those who run after another shall multiply, and this world is selling you, selling me all these little mini gods, little saviors, little. I will give you safety. I will give you rest. I will keep you secure. I'll let you sleep easy at night. And we see our friends and neighbors run after them. I mean, how many people think if they just have more money, enough money, and how much is enough, it's always a little more. If I have enough money, then I'll be secure. Or I know some people, if I have enough guns. And again, it's the same as how many guns is enough? Just a few more, um, right? Th then I'll have safety. And, and they run after these things. And the sorrows of those who run after another multiply. Uh, you don't want sorrow. You want security. True security. And again, that doesn't mean you don't do these things. I, I, it means you're not trusting in them. And then David's response to those who run after another. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Total disassociation from their worship. I do not participate in their worship. Now keep your thumb here and turn to 1 Corinthians Five, because this is a slightly tricky topic. You might get the impression from the Psalms, from this Psalm in particular, that there's like a zero tolerance, zero association with the ungodly. And I think Paul in the New Testament offers some clarity on that point. Um, specifically, David says he will not participate in their worship, their drink offerings of blood, forbidden by God in Deuteronomy and other places. And he will not lift their names upon their lips. And of course, you call upon the name to give honor or to call upon for help, another deity. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, turn there first, I think we get the clearest um, instruction on this, verse 9. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And there have been Christians who tried that. They made monasteries. Get me away from the godless. Get me away from the greedy. Get me away from those who worship other gods. Didn't work out so well. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So there's your first principle. We are, whatever this means, David's, I refuse to go with them. It doesn't mean zero fellowship with the world or zero interaction with the world. Um, but if you turn out of chapter 8 very quickly, I'm just trying to make this point quickly, what this looks like. Paul then moves on to an issue about um, idol worship, right? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered by idols, as to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence; that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What Paul is saying is this. If you're in the market and there's some discounted meat that was sacrificed to Odin or to Apollo or to Dionysus or whoever, like, you can buy the meat and eat it. It's not like magically tainted meat. Like, that's okay. These, these gods aren't real. They don't really exist. Now, later, Paul and elsewhere will say there are demons that stand behind these things. But you can eat a steak that's been offered up to Zeus. You know? And he does warn that not everyone possesses this knowledge. You don't want to put a stumbling block in front of other believers. But hey, you can do that. But you can't participate in their worship. See, in the case of food sacrificed to idols, buying it in the marketplace, you're not worshiping Zeus. You're just buying the cheaper Zeus burger. <laughs> they got to find something to do with it because they're, you know, the pagan gods are there offering sacrifices. You got all this meat left over from the sacrifice, and so it can be discounted. And some Christians were thinking, no, we can't do that. We can't have any participation in that. That desire comes from a good place. And Paul's saying, look, it's not tainted by Zeus. Eat the meat. It's okay. But, but turn to chapter 11, where, where Paul does indicate there's a line we can't cross. Okay? Chapter 11. No, chapter 10. I'm sorry. Chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 14. He's just been talking about the Lord's Supper. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. What he's saying is, by, by taking communion, you are taking part in something. You are, participate, you are a participant in something. In that case, something good. Okay? Verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participant with demons. 
See, Paul's not going to the other rich. On the one hand, buying the meat offered in the marketplace, sacrifice to the Jews, that's totally fine. That's totally cool. What about going to the service where they sacrifice the animal to Zeus? I mean, maybe they're giving free drinks or something there. Could I go to that? Because Zeus isn't real after all. No, you can't, Paul says. You cannot participate in the worship of other gods. So you can, after the fact, buy the meat. No problem. It's not tainted. Can I go there when they're doing it? No. I do not want you to be participants with demons, he says in verse 20. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So so I want you to get this. There's a huge difference between forsaking and separating from false worship in this world, which you must do, and separating from all worldliness and all people in the world. Now, Paul, in chapter 5, makes it clear, I'm not telling you not to associate with these people. But what David says he's doing back in Psalm 16, what David confesses he is doing, is when it comes to their drink offerings, which is their worship, when it comes to giving honor to their gods with their lips, he has nothing to do with it. His delight, his joy, is to be with his saints, with the, with the people of God. And when it comes to the worship of other gods, the honoring of other gods, he takes no part in it. Now, where it gets trickier is, again, our culture worships other gods. Make no mistake, but it's not nearly as overt. And so parsing out those lines... How do, you, how do you avoid the worship of money when your friends and co-workers worship money? How do you avoid taking their God's names on your lips? It can get tricky. How do you pursue a livelihood and an income in a way that is not idolatrous like the person next over from you who thinks if they could just close this last big sale this year, then they'll be set, then they'll be safe, then they'll be secure? There's going to be challenges. Challenges. But David... Part of his devotion to God is his devotion to God's people and his separation from the worship of others. I do not participate in their worship, he says. Okay, point three now, verses five through eight, celebration of sovereign goodness. So there's David's own loyalty. What does it mean that he takes refuge in the Lord? It means I look to God for no other. I have no other good except in God. It's his people that I delight in, and those who reject me run after another, I have nothing to do with that. That's what it means to take refuge in God. Now we move from a confession of loyal faithfulness to a celebration of sovereign goodness. Enough of David and what he's done. Let's hear about the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Celebration of sovereign goodness. And in verses 5 and 6, in multiple metaphors, David says this, the Lord is my inheritance and my provision. The the word pictures he uses are all taken from the division of the land. Each and every one of them is taken from the division of the land. You can read through Deuteronomy, you can read through Joshua, you can see that. Um, But the very first phrase is, is very specific. Turn to Numbers 18 quickly. If you remember, um, there are 13, 12 tribes of Israel, because there's two half-tribes. And the Lord divides up the, the land for them. 
And one of the tribes gets no land. They get some cities and they get some pasture, but they don't get boundaried land. And that, of course, is the priestly tribe of Levi. And in Numbers 18, the Lord explains how rather than getting less, they're actually getting more than the others. Deuteronomy 18, pick it up in verse 20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear their sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations among all the people of Israel. They shall have no inheritance for the tithe, the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution for the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance inheritance among the people of Israel. So who is the inheritance of the people of, of, of Levi? It's the Lord. That's their inheritance. They get a greater share in the Lord. And David, even though he's not a Levite, says, the Lord is my chosen portion. And this gets back to seeing no other good except in God. David, you're king. David, you, you have ruled. Presumably some amount of wealth. I mean, it depends when in his life he wrote this. This could be when David's running around in the, in the woods hiding from Saul. But David had a lot of things to find pleasure in. And yet he had, because of his focused devotion, hunger, yearning for God and seeing no good apart from him, he likens himself to the Levites who have no inheritance who have no lasting treasure on earth, we, we get God. That's him. The Lord is my chosen portion. And my cup, the, the, the Hebrew notion of the cup is where the matters of life come from. So the wicked are given a cup of stumbling to drink by God. That, that's the notion. So when I say it says inheritance and provision, you are the one I receive in the end, and you are the one who meters out the goods of life to me, is the notion. Um, we see that positively if you look in like Psalm, well, Psalm 23, 5. He makes my cup overflow. This is, this is your daily allotment and provision. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And even today we have that expression of your lot in life. And what he's saying is all the issues of my life come from God's hand. He is my goal, my telos. He is what I inherit. And it's in his hand that everything in my life comes from including this very trouble that I'm crying out for help for, right? If, if the Lord holds his cup and the Lord holds his lot, then whatever it is that's terrifying David and saying, help, is coming from that cup, from that lot. And yet, you can say in verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. These are the lines of dividing up the land. This is still the word picture, dividing up the land. You get a map out and you draw lines and you say, okay, this is for Levi and this is for Reuben. Lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Because my inheritance is the Lord. So what, to summarize what he's saying is, the Lord, again, is, he's like that dog when you got the treat and you move the treat and he just moves his head. And you, you know what I'm talking about. You've done it. You're like, you know. like that dog who's just fixated and focused. on This is David. You're my only good. You're my only joy. You're my inheritance. 
And from you come all the issues of my life. You hold the cup that I drink from every day. You, you hold the lot. You divide the measurements out. And it is good. It is good. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Which may seem contradictory considering that David's crying out for help. Which means we can recognize simultaneously, I need help, I'm scared, I don't like this, yet I know it's from God and ultimately it's for my good. You can believe both of those things and go running to God, help, and believe this is from his hand. This is from his cup. That's, that's okay. You can, you can believe and do both. Believing it's from God's hand doesn't mean you've just got to say, well, I guess this is good. Yay. I mean, there's a confident sense that God will use this for good. I, I used the analogy before of one of my sons going to the dentist needing a shot. And he has to believe simultaneously, and it's totally fine. He's scared of that shot. He doesn't want that shot of Novocaine. But my dad says, this, I need this. This is good for me. This is important. And he can be terrified and cling to my hand. That's fine. And both those beliefs can be present. This is necessary. This is good for me. This is my father loves me, and he says I need to do this. And I don't want any bit of that. That's okay. That's cool. And David can say, help. And the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is my inheritance provider. Point B, I bless the Lord who is my counselor. Now he's celebrating not just God's sovereign control over his life, but his, his counsel in life. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. God gets wis- David gets wisdom from God. These are some of the benefits of the here and now. We're not going to need counsel and instruction, I don't think, in heaven. Certainly not like we do now. And David's looking both to eternal benefits, eternal joys, and present benefits here. The instruction he gets from the Lord and his word. Now that phrase, my heart instructs me, literally it's my kidneys. The Hebrew notion of thought is your kidneys, not your heart, um, are, are where feelings and things come from. And I think this is best understood as David meditating on God's word at night. Why at night? When you're lying in your bed, you're meditating what God has said. You're chewing it up. And God is instructing him even there. So he pr- blesses the Lord who is his counselor. Who is his counselor. Um, then, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What does it mean to set the Lord always before you? I think what he's saying is, in my mind and in my awareness and in my consciousness, I am constantly thinking of and aware of God. And quite honestly, in my life, this is the biggest challenge for me. Um, I can go entire mornings, entire afternoons without giving a thought to God. It's not that I'm engaged in overt wickedness. It's just I'm not devoting my thought to him. It's going to be really difficult to do all things to the glory of God if you're not thinking of God. And so David has made a practice, and God would have us follow, of always setting the Lord before us, always being aware of his presence. How else can we trust in him? How else can we serve him? How else can we do those things that please him if we're not even thinking of him? I have set the Lord always before me. Again, a, a really challenging ideal. And yet it's directly linked to his, his security. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That picture of right hand, by the way, it shows up here and it shows up in 11 in very different contexts, is a picture of strength, 
power, protection. And what he's aware of is whatever he's going through, whatever this drama is, whatever this threat is that's making him cry out for help, whatever you're going through, God is at your right hand. God is there to provide strength and protection. The blank here, the Lord is present to give strength and protection. Therefore, I shall not be shaken. And so here's, here's the logic. If you can be aware of and remind yourself that God is with me wherever I am. He's with me. He, he's not just with me. He is with me to help. He's right there at the right position of, of help and strength at the right hand. That's where our confidence that I shall not be shaken can come from. But you, you won't have that confidence if you're not setting the Lord before you and reminding yourself, God's with me in this. God has promises for me in this. Therefore, I shall not be shaken. By the way, that's part of what links up to Psalm 15 as well. He shall never be moved. Let's quickly move into the consequence of faithful confidence. The consequence of faithful confidence. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures evermore. And David, by listing his heart, the ESV has whole being. The NIV has tongue. Literally, it's my glory. My chavod. Um, And I, I think the picture there is everything good in me. Everything that is right in me rejoices. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. This is a security that is total, head to toes. Emotional, real protection and security. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. So point A, the exuberant joy and assurance of true security. The assurance of true security. Beginning to see the consequence of this faithfulness. Uh, that our world yearns for hungers after. will pay large amounts of money for the promise of receiving. And here, David's getting that payoff. He's getting that confidence. Um, confidence first we see in death. In death, verse 10. And again, it's linked by a four. Verse nine, therefore. Verse 10, four. This is all flowing out of what's come before. This is the consequence of what's come before. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David knows he's going to die at some point. He's not saying, you won't let me die. What he's saying is, I trust you. Not only do you give me counsel in this life, but when I die, you will not then abandon me. That, that is good news. God is faithful not only in this life, but if you trust in him, if you trust in his son, he will not let you slip through his grasp even when you die. That's, that's the picture. When I'm at my most helpless, when I lay dying on my deathbed, when I'm at my weakest and most impotent, God will not abandon me. I have that confidence. We're tempted when we're weak, when we're powerless, to become frightened. And in that moment of ultimate weakness and death, God will not abandon me. I think of Luke again. Jesus hanging on the cross, the thief next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you today, 
you will be with me in paradise. Our God does not abandon those who are perishing, who have trusted in him. Confidence in death. He goes further even to say, the Lord will not let his holy ones see decay. The Lord will not let his holy ones see decay. Now, some think this is overtly messianic, meaning it's only talking about the Messiah. I, I don't think that's exactly right. It might be. I don't, if, if you take that reading, David is going along talking about his own experience, and all of a sudden, he switches to, not only will you not save my, you will save my soul from Sheol, but you're also not going to let your Messiah's body decay. I, I, doesn't make a ton of sense. I think more, David is confessing his confidence, not only that God will not abandon his soul, but ultimately God will, there is a resurrection. There will be a redemption of the body. And that's true for those who trust in God. And we'll see in a moment that's ultimately fulfilled and true in Jesus, who perfectly modeled this and is the prototype of the resurrection. The Lord will not let his holy one. By the way, holy one is really can just mean pious one, devout one, faithful one. Now, there is no one more pious, nor faithful, nor devout than Jesus. But turn, turn now to, to Acts chapter 2, an idea of how this psalm is quoted in the New Testament and why its Davidic authorship is so central and, and necessary. Acts chapter 2, the first sermon, Peter at Pentecost. Um, as he winds up towards the end of his sermon, pick it up in verse um, 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now there is an extended quotation of verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Psalm 16. Then look what he says about it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. See why the Davidic authorship of the psalm is critical. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set up of his, one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So I think, I think the logic is this. It's ultimately true of believers. David's writing it for himself. His own hope is that God will not leave his soul in the realm of the dead. His own hope is ultimately his body will be restored. And yet, ultimately, one is coming to whom this will be perfectly and totally true. The one who perfectly models this devotion, the one who perfectly demonstrates this delight in God, is the one whose body will not see not a moment of corruption. David's body is corrupted, and it will be restored and renewed. Jesus dies, and within th in three days, he's raised again. That hope that David has in his own resurrection is seen perfectly and fulfilled perfectly in the Messiah. So David has hope in death. Finally, he has confidence in life. 
is confidence in life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. First, the Lord leads me in the path of life. And in the context of this psalm, sets of the land promises, I think this has to have in mind Deuteronomy 31. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read to you. When Moses is done reiterating the covenant to God's people, he sums it up this way. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of your Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But... If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn after the worship of other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live in your offspring, loving the Lord your God. David saying, after referencing all those land pictures, God leads me in the path of life. There's a path of life and there's a path of death. And only through God's presence, God's counsel, God's enabling, can we walk along the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. One of, the, um, one of the great difficulties of the Christian life in walking by faith is that the things of this world shine and sparkle at times so much more than the promises of God, if we're honest, right? It's because of the promise of pleasure and sex or in money or in drugs or whatever that we forsake the Lord. And yet the Bible, if it's to be taken seriously, um, says... That, there is far more pleasure in God. And that's the claim of the Bible. It's not simply put up with suffering now for something that comes later. But David is testifying to, I mean, pleasures forevermore. And C.S. Lewis has this great quote, speaking of this principle. I, I just would read it to you in closing. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Let me say that again. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires for pleasure, is what he means, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's a profound quote. You know, sin, I heard a pastor once say, it's like a stick of juicy fruit. You ever eat juicy fruit gum? It tastes amazing for about 10 seconds, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, you've got a piece of chewy cardboard in your mouth. And that is sin. The author of Hebrews the, speaks of the fleeting pleasure of sin. There is a joy and a pleasure that can be found in sin, and it does not last, and it does not fulfill. And we run after these things when infinite pleasure is put in front of us. 
Um, It's not that our desires for pleasure are too strong. They're too weak. We're far too easily pleased. Um, The the key to this security is is finding our joy and our pleasure in God. And those might sound like strange words, but it is the overreaching testimony of Scripture. And if that doesn't resonate in your heart, talk to me. Talk to somebody. Um, The Christian faith involves the mind in believing the gospel and true claims. The Christian faith also changes the affections and the desires and the pleasures so that somebody captivated by God can say what David says. And God would have us sing this. As, as high and lofty as this ideal is, God's intention is that each and every one of us might be able to sing this. If, if you wrestle with fear and uncertainty, anxiety, here is true stability, true security. My flesh dwells secure. I shall not be shaken. But that goes hand in hand with I have no other God. I have no other pleasure. I have no other good thing. Everything in my life is metered out from God's sovereign hand, even the things that make me cry out, help. And he is good. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. This is the confident assurance of faith. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for being who you are. Help us to believe these things. Help us to believe your promises of pleasure, joy, and reward. Oh God, Guard us from going after another. Guard us from running after lesser joys and pleasures. We don't want to multiply our sorrows. Give us the grace to remind ourselves constantly, you are with us, you are at our right hand. And give us the confidence that in that knowledge, we cannot be shaken. Lord, we thank you that the confidence that you will not abandon our soul, that you will not let our bodies see decay was proven in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep your word. You can be depended on. He was not abandoned to death. His body did not undergo decay. And in his life and in his resurrection, we have life and we are confident that we too will be raised from the dead. Incorruptible. Lord God, give us the faith to believe these things, to pursue these things. Thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.